0: Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 5, The Kings, the human ones. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, brace yourself for a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. The quasi-romantic theme of the end of last week's episode continues. When Abner sends messengers offering his support to David at Hebron, the king has a condition for his acceptance of Abner's support. David requires that his first love, Michal, the daughter of Saul, who loved him and saved his skin with an animal skin back in the beginning, be returned to him. You remember the daughter for whom Saul had required one hundred Philistine foreskins as a reverse dowry, the daughter Saul had taken away from David, marrying her off to another fellow to spite his rival. Clearly, David never forgot her, and Ishbaal's final royal act is to take his sister from Paltiel, to whom Saul had married her, and restore her to her first husband." She is clearly a remarkable woman to be David's sole requirement for alliance with Abner. Her worth is further evidenced by the fact that poor Paltiel follows her and her moving camels for a good distance when she departs, weeping all the way. Wuv! Twu Wuv! He'd have followed her all the way to Hebron if Abner hadn't shooed him away. Obviously, Abner's a crafty and resourceful fellow, or he'd not have gotten this far. He sends a message to the nation's elders, excepting Judah, of course, who are already all in for David. His message makes it sound like he's been waiting for this moment of getting to follow David all his life, when in fact Abner's been David's adversary maneuvering to get his own man-slash-puppet king over the whole nation in order to retain control. Let's remember this is all about Abner getting back at Ishbal, because Ishbal had the audacity to rebuke Abner over his sin with Rizpah. Abner's clearly in need of some anger management. And speaking of angry... The tribe of Benjamin isn't going to be very happy when they all get Abner's message telling them that their family member is getting chucked in favor of a Judean. Ever the politician, Abner preemptively gives his home tribe extra attention to win them over, and he lays the Yahweh has promised that David will deliver us from the Philistines on thick. David knows nothing of the intrigue at this point and welcomes Abner and his team of twenty men with open arms for a feast celebrating their alliance. If there was ever a doubt about who was holding the reins in the north, Abner's boast that he'll rally all of Israel to make a covenant with David as their new king says it all. You don't speak on behalf of the entire nation, in public no less. Unless you can back it up, or you're a fool. Abner's no fool, and has set the wheels in motion to make it happen. However, the people on both sides, David's and Abner slash Ishbal's, are still pretty clunky in their thinking about, well, everything. But especially in their thinking about politics and how to transition everyone over to David's monarchy. And so, Without consulting David, or me, obviously, men who think they're doing David a favor assassinate Abner and Ishbal. Two different teams, unbeknownst to one another, do the deadly deeds. First, one of David's chief lieutenants, Joab, kills Abner to avenge the death of Joab's brother, whom Abner had killed in battle during the just-ended civil war. Joab ostensibly is also concerned that Abner is insincere in his professed Davidic loyalty and represents danger to David. Could be, but Joab's motivation is personal, not political. Not that that would make anything right. Poor Ishbal gets murdered during his noonday nap by two of his own captains. You can catch up on all these details in 2 Samuel. Right now we're up to chapter 4. Ishbal's captains figure they'll get in good with David and get better posts in the new administration if they off the new king's rival. They even go so far as to bring Ishbaal's head down to Hebron, thinking David will delight in their taking vengeance on his past and current rivals, Saul and Ishbal. And once again, David proves his heart by his reactions when news of these dual deaths reaches him. Abner dies first, and David is so angry at the news, he curses the house of Joab. Not the kind of cursing you're used to, the kind where David calls calamity of every kind down on Joab and his descendants, disease, death, leprosy, hunger. A few expletives would have been far easier to take. David also insists that Joab and his family all formally mourn for Abner, and though their sorrow is feigned, David's is sincere, as he weeps over Abner's death, calling his dead ally a great man and prince of Israel. And so David buries Abner with full honors there in Hebron, not as an enemy, but as a friend. Imagine, then, David's reaction when Ishbal's two treasonous captains bring their former king's head to him. David lays into them for taking matters into their own hands, which he says was doubly unnecessary in view of how I have been watching over him this whole time. He never had anything to fear from Ishbal or Abner, for that matter. David sentences the assassins to their own deaths for their cowardly murder of Ishbaal, whose head David buries with respect in the fresh tomb of Abner. This, of course, would have upset Abner terribly in view of his prideful anger over Ishbaal's recent chastisement. However, Abner is too dead to protest. And just like that, no one is in charge of the north. Sure, Abner had circulated his recommendation, but nothing had been done about it, and now all the other tribes are without a king, judge, or court jester. Not a good situation when you've got Philistines close by that would love nothing more than to swoop in and take over a leaderless land. So, following Abner's example of acting like this is what they were hoping for the whole time, Leaders from all the tribes of Israel, as in the tribes who had sworn allegiance to Ishbal instead of David during that pesky interim civil war. All those leaders come to David at Hebron. We're crossing into 2 Samuel 5. They say they remember with fondness the times when David and Saul seemed to be getting along, and David was leading all of Saul's battles with the Philistines for him. They want to be a united single nation again under David's kingship, which of course means he will keep the Philistines from them, and everyone kisses and makes up, and anoints David as the king over all twelve tribes of Israel, the restored nation. This has been years in the making, and David has patiently waited for my timing of this event to work itself out, He could have forced the issue a number of times and ways, as we have mentioned, but he didn't. Now the throne is his with neither compromise nor regret, and the respect this has garnered him within and without the kingdom has been well worth the wait. David is the ripe age of thirty seven. This is too touchstone a moment to let pass without asking you to turn it on yourself for a minute or two. We've talked about the process as we've gone along with David, but here he is finally in the place we promised him he'd get to. The whole time, from the promise of his anointing as a boy by Samuel to his anointing as king by the twelve tribes, David has lived in faith. He's lived like there was no question whether he would be king. And why was there no question? Because I said he would be king. How is that a good example for you? What is it you would love to happen right away that is taking its sweet old time? You can bet Dave had some mighty frustrating times out there in exile, dodging Saul, the one he was supposed to be replacing. There were some days that David's great success was simply to make it through the day without doing something rash or hasty. And some days... His great success was simply making it through the day. I made everything right for David at just the right time. Listen to me, friend. I am going to make everything right for you as well at just the right time. That is more certain than the rising of tomorrow's sun. So live like you are certain it is true. If things don't seem to be moving in that direction, Hang in there, and like David, keep the faith. David's first act as king over the full nation is symbolic, political, and practical all at the same time. You'll recall that Saul and his family, including Abner, are from the tribe of Benjamin, whose territory in the Promised Land borders Judah to its north. Right there on that border between those two tribes is perched the city of Jebus, a city that's held out thus far and belongs to neither tribe. Because of its natural defenses, steep valleys on three sides, as well as the prickly obstinance of its citizens, the Jebusites who are introduced in Deuteronomy 7, basically a flavor of Canaanite, have held on to the city in spite of an initial setback at the beginning of Judges. When David approaches Jebus, its defenders taunt him, claiming their lame and blind can hold him back, that his mother was a hamster, and that his father smelt of elderberries. However, while such pleasantries are being exchanged up and out in the open air, David has sent his equivalent of a navy seal in through the shaft to the city's spring, springing the city's gates and taking it with ease. If you haven't guessed it yet, The town is renamed Jerusalem and becomes the seat of David's throne as well as that of his successors. Situated in unclaimed land between tribal territories, it's perfectly located politically with no direct allegiance to any of the twelve, thus avoiding any appearance of David's favoring his own tribe. Had he appointed a national capital within Judah, such as at Hebron, the eleven other tribes would have never stopped complaining. Geographically, Jebus slash Jerusalem's far more central than Hebron, and the surrounding valleys make it easily defensible, especially since David is totally ready for any attempt at his own patented watershaft trick. David's success, however, is not attributed to his clever military savvy. It's attributed to me. David becomes greater and greater because Yahweh, the God of hosts, is with him in 2 Samuel 5.10. This doesn't escape the smarter neighbors, and King Hiram of Tyre moves quickly to make nice with David in his new monarchy by sending him the materials and craftsmen with which to build a new home in Jerusalem fit for a king. Tyre is known for its excellent cedar. That way, every time David comes home and smells the fresh cedar that's lining his floors and walls, he'll have warm, fuzzy feelings about Hiram and never consider him an enemy. The fact that even his home is handed to him, just as the kingdom and crown have been, reminds David that the place has been put in his hands on every level by us. The same is true on every level of everything good that's been put in your hands. Use it well, friend, and keep walking with me on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. Then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. You can find a link to our Patreon page there as well. We're sponsored by the Oak Haven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Iker designs our website graphics, kennyikerart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.